Uh, yeah, that won't do. Uh, how about this one? Um, no. I'll tell you what, I'll just start the podcast. Hello, welcome back to the Andrew Culture Podcast. If you've heard this podcast before, you'll know that I like to gather interesting people around me. Uh, well, the reality is I don't gather them. These people just sort of gravitate towards me. And I think in life, generally people we find we get along well with, we stick with. I don't think that's any great revelation. But also on this podcast, I like to talk to people who I think have made interesting about turns or interesting right hand or left hand turns in their lives. So it's anybody that has done something I think is interesting, which I realised I was talking in like late night podcast voice <laughs> instead of myself. So I don't know where that came from. Um, and I have one such friend with me. So friend and honoured guest, would you like to tell us your name? Uh, yes. Good evening. My name is Sean. Sean Antonioli. Excellent. Lovely to have you here, Sean. So Thanks. I first met you on a bike. Right. And you were on a bike. And I honestly can't remember how it came about. I think you were on a single speed. I can remember you didn't have gears, and I did. And yet everyone else without any gears was racing up ahead. It was a fixie, actually. It wasn't a single speed, was it? Yeah, fixies were um, were the big thing. I had a an interesting sort of start with that where... I, I got into um, the whole fixie world through an Italian friend of mine. He took me to a, a film exhibition. I think it was Milan. It was a bike festival. Uh, and I saw this whole film about fixies and just went nuts for it. That sounds great. What's that called? Can I just quickly make a note of that? Um, they do these bicycle bicycle festivals, movie festivals, and it's just a whole bunch of shorts. There was one in Colchester uh, many years later that I went to, but it's... It's one where they had uh, films about the, the history of certain bicycles and et cetera, and this whole thing about fixies. And we, I think we were in a movie theater kind of set up. So it was really just an amazing atmosphere. And there was all these guys doing tricks on fixies, and then there was stuff about the alley cat races, and I was just hooked on it. And then when I uh, was England, when I was in England, I, I started looking into, you know, should I buy one? How would you configure it? All the parts you can get. It was like proper fad was happening at the time, right? And it was neat because my father-in-law... He used to be a cyclist. I think he was trying out for the Olympics, and he had a, a classic bike that he said I could have. It was called a Freddie Grubb. So I became fascinated with Freddie Grubbs and, and British classic racing bikes, right? And so I went to convert it into a fixie, and I did everything, new parts. Uh, I gave it a new life because it was rusted, and I think one of the, the backstays was bent, fixed it all up. And because I'd made my bike this, like, bling machine, right? I took photos of it all the time. It was my pride and joy. <laughs> And there was a day where I was cycling home, and I was going past the Dove. and a pub in Ipswich. For yeah, and as I uh, was cycling by, there was about five or six fixies all tied up outside. And so I, I said goodbye to my friends who were cycling on, and I just went into the pub garden with my bike. Because <laughs> I thought, there's a bunch of guys in here who will just know. And mm. I just walked into the pub garden with my bike, and then a group of guys that I'd never met before just saw me and raised their hands and waved me over. So I went over with my bike, and I said, yeah, you guys must have the, the fixies outside. And they started looking at my bike, and we started chatting fixies. And it turns out they were a bunch of guys that lived in a house together, and they had this thing of going for a weekly ride and a pint. So they're like, yeah, next Wednesday, meet us at the Fat Lady statue in town, and we'll go for a ride. And, oh. and that's how I sort of, I, you know, just went into a pub with my bike, and I wound up joining a fixie crew. See, knowing you now, Sean, that, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> just, well, you know... Um, 
I was keen to make friends and, and I was big into that hobby and I just started with it. And so to see other people with similar bikes in town was, you know, in London, it'll be everywhere. London mm. will be on the street corners. You'll always see fixies and all the different stickers and the, you know, the, the, the crazy rims and you'll see, you know, brake lists. You'll see all the cool stuff. But in Ipswich, it's kind of a rare sighting. And then I would meet up with them on Wednesday nights. And we'd go around, and they had a Facebook page, and they'd post up, you know, meet at the Fat Lady at seven o'clock, and we'd go to Woodbridge, or we'd go to Pinmill. Okay, go I just like got a, just got to chuck in for anyone not from Ipswich. The Fat Lady is a a, a clique or a local term for. There's a statue in the middle of town. Um, it's the Giles statue. Giles, a famous illustrator who lived lived near Ipswich, but it, it's a big. It's a, it's a large a, lady. Yeah, it's a large lady with a skinny young man. She's got a purse and stuff. It's a cartoon well, character. It's, in her, it's, it's grandma. Yeah, grandma, it's grandma yeah. with, um, with with kind of all her family. So, so you you found yourself, you know, another one of your decisions, and we've got several to unpick tonight. <laughs> but you, you found yourself with a bunch of people, and somehow yeah. I knew some of them, and we ended up going for bike rides, and that, that's that's how we met. We may touch on some of those adventures later on, but one of the bike rides I I first big bike ride i did with you was the dunwich dynamo yeah which is hackney fields in london that's always a brilliant memory yeah. about eight o'clock in the evening and then yeah. thousands of people cycled to the suffolk coast so from london to the east coast of the uk yeah it's like 100 kilometers in the dark oh it's much more than 100 kilometers what, 120 i think it's i think it's, it's, it's about 120 miles all right no so it's a long ride you and the year you and i did it everyone else that we were with basically went racing off ahead because they were <laughs> fitter and yeah. younger than we yeah. are. So we we ended up making our own way to Dunwich fairly, fairly comfortably. Yeah. Um, and then we actually cycled back to Ipswich as well, and that's the only yeah. time I've done that. So we made it about at least 150 miles. But those those bike rides, they give you an opportunity to really get to know someone. Yeah. Yeah, because... It's hours on a bike, yeah. It is hours and hours. And when you're cycling through the Suffolk countryside in the pitch dark, and I'm fairly sure my yeah. lights had packed up. If you don't have any lights on you, you don't see anything. Yeah. No, so it's, it's a unique thing. And I got to know you a bit then. And that's when some of your story kind of revealed itself. And that, that's what I'd like to talk to you about on this podcast. So let's go right back to the start because... I weighed eight pounds, ten ounces... Really? That's no, I'm quite big. No, I'm just joking. I, I was going to say, I would be impressed <laughs> go if, back you, that, that if you knew how ahead. big you were. <laughs> um, right, so the, the keen-eared listeners might notice that Sean doesn't have a Suffolk English accent like I do. Well, that being said, I think your accent is more Suffolk now than when I met you. You know, I can't win. If I go home, I get told I'm English. But when I'm here, I'm told I'm American. So, <laughs> Okay, I, yeah. so um, I won't w- ask where, where home is, but where were you born? I was born in New York. Uh, just above New York City in uh, Westchester, so suburbia. I'd say about an hour on the train, you'd be at Grand Central Station in the heart of New York City. So lower lower New York, essentially. So, so state of New York, but state not... State of New York, just outside New York City in, in the counties, yeah, the suburb, suburbs. Okay, great. So how was how was life in the suburbs? Um, it was all right. I mean, a lot of greenery around and uh, parks, things like that, it's sort of... It was interesting because I spent a lot of time sort of, you know, friends and stuff would be there. But a lot of family was in Connecticut, which was very rural. Mm. So great memories as a kid going to my grandmother's house on my dad's side in, in Connecticut and being in a, in a very country kind of setting and very New England setting with like red barns and, and things like that and um, apple festivals and things, you know, very, very New Englandy lifestyle up there. And then my mom's side 
my grandparents on my mom's side, they were in the Bronx. And uh, so my, quite a contrast then. Well, yeah, well, my, my, my heritage is Irish and Italian, and I'm second-generation American because both my mom and my dad were born in America, but my grandparents all came from Europe. Oh, wow. So, like, super... Uh, I don't know what the terminology is, and I'm very careful around these terminologies, but that, to me, that's like super new American. It's just like two <laughs> generations, you know. Yeah. I've, I've met some Americans who, who you know, say, well, they're, they're Irish-American, and, and it was like a hundred years ago or something, but that's that's quite yeah, fresh. That's, that always, that's always tricky waters to, to navigate because obviously the second you, you step into um, Europe, you're, you are American. It doesn't matter if you're first, second, third, mm. or a hundred generation. Um, but in America, everyone sort of does relate to their heritage on top of being American because they do it at school. They say, oh, today's World Heritage Day, and everyone goes back to their grandparents to say they're Polish or they're Irish or this and that. I, I, I find it really interesting. It's one of the things about the little I know about American culture because I don't think anyone, I don't think even you, Sean, can really, America's such a big place and growing up in Britain, it's really hard to wrap your head around just how massive well, New it York, is. New York is massive. When I explain where, uh, where I grew up and where I went to university in New York, it sounds like, you know, it's just massive. You could travel for eight eight hours in a car and still be inside New York. You, you can't drive eight hours anywhere in a car without ending up in the sea. <laughs> <laughs> well, you probably can, but um, yeah. But it, I find it interesting that second generation because that means that you had people whose second language was English in your living memory. So, uh, well, it's kind of on the assumption that you knew your grandparents. Yeah. So my mom's side was Irish. So my grandmother and my grandfather, the funny thing about that is they both were from relatively the same area in Ireland, but met in the Bronx. Oh, really? So, but they, they came from, when you picture the Bronx and you picture 1950s Bronx and a little bit before that, uh, you've, you've got families bringing over cousins and creating work and saying, I can send over family now and sending money home. That whole scene mm. was very much uh, community-based, so the Bronx goes through phases of, di of different ethnicities moving in and then moving out so you'll have you know the Irish run it for a bit and then it might be um, a bit more Spanish later on etc so you've got that on that side and then on my dad's side my heritage is uh, Italian and Lithuanian and my grandfather passed away when I was maybe 12 something like that or, or a bit younger than that um, but my, and my grandmother was Lithuanian but she was brought up in an Italian household so very much uh, Italian that, but, that's a fantastic that's a really interesting mix because Lithuania and Italy aren't close well the, uh, it's tricky because I always ask my dad well how did our family end up in Connecticut mm. because if everyone comes off the boat in New York how do you get sent up there and there's things about like the postal service was created and they needed people up there and then you get up there and there's farming and there's people have skills working back home with uh, with animals and cows and dairies and things like that and then the, the great thing about all the stories about my grandparents is that they all did a little bit of something. Mm. So if there was a, a funeral to be a pallbearer on a Sunday, done. Really? <laughs> if there was someone that needed a bit of um, carrying bricks around, done. There was always a, there was always a will and a way to, to find an extra nickel doing something because uh, careers were kind of like that. You could dip in and dip out, um, do different things. My grandfather in the Bronx, I believe, was a messenger and riding the subways, knew the system inside and out, and he, he delivered messages, I think, for different account firms, I think. I can't remember exactly what they were for. See, things, things like that sound like they might be something that, that stopped happening a long time ago because of the internet, but I've got, I've got friends who ran messenger things between government departments in Ipswich, mm. you know, late 90s. 
Yeah. As in, here's a piece of paper in a folder, yeah, move it to it. somewhere else, which yeah. sound, it sounds like it should have died out in the 1920s, but no, it's probably still going on now. Mm. There's certainly still bicycle curious yeah. in, in London, isn't there? Yeah, for essential next day, next minute delivery. Next minute <laughs> delivery. Yeah. Yeah. I just think those guys just must be so fit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so so you've grown you've grown up in the classic, well, the classic American melting pot of of yeah, and I would say it was it was it was pretty sweet because I had suburbia where there was playgrounds and swings and things. But then my mom was a teacher in the Bronx, so and my dad was an optician in Manhattan, so there'd be plenty of trips down to see grandparents and where my parents worked and get a taste of New York City. And in the eighties. Uh, New York City was quite gritty, and you know you got the feeling of what it would be like to be a city kid. And I would find it a, a mix of scary and exciting. Can you can you remember feeling that when you when you went to New York when you were younger? Can you remember that yeah, feeling just, of I well, like this, but I don't want to stay here? Yeah, because there was a lot of things that were, especially for a kid, quite scary. So I remember seeing a, a, a school ground fight at my mom's school, um, and I remember being in Manhattan and. This was so 80s, and you get to 90s. You're looking at Mayor uh, Giuliani when yeah. he cleaned up homelessness. And you, I remember my sister and I would pack up peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to bring to homeless people in New York City because it was they were everywhere. And then Giuliani like shoved them under the carpet, yeah. and that was part of his policy, and was quite ruthless to them to to move them out of um, you know Times Square. I I think Times Square was just at the end of its raunchy days when I was getting to be a teenager. So I kind of missed out on that <laughs> you, bit. You, you missed like all that The penny stuff. shows and stuff like that. But that's what I, I remember, the, the hustle and bustle. Just the fact of getting on the trains, getting on the MTA, and you get out in Grand Central. To get out in Grand Central Station as a kid, you're just in with a swarm of ants, you know? Like, you could easily get swept away. It's really like traveling to another world. Yeah, but it was... I still get that feeling going to London. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of, you just have, you get out and you just know you have to keep moving. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, something, you know, just keep moving. And that's how you stay, stay yeah, safe. That's, that's how you stay go, safe. Go with the flow, yeah. How you don't get nudged or you're going to pull shoved. over, find, find a safe space to pull over. I yeah. genuinely walk that way in London. It's not just because I'm a country mouse. But if I'm going to stop, you know what, you're on a bicycle. Uh, if you ride on a track, you have to look over your shoulder before slowing down. It's just kind of, a, a, you know, on a, in a velodrome. It's, it's you know, you and yeah, I have done this. What they teach you're not going to collide with someone. Yeah. That's that's how I how I stop walking in London. I always yeah. look over my shoulder and then turn left, like towards you know yeah. towards the edge. So so that that was. It sounds like it would have been really interesting. Well, it still is. I'd really like to go to New York, but at some point, it it sounds like you got itchy feet. I'm only saying it sounds like because <laughs> I've just realised the listeners don't know what's coming yet. But what 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 happened? Because I know you left America. What? What? Well, uh, I went to university in upstate New York, which is very upstate New York. So we're talking about how big New York City is, you know, how New York is, and um, that's one of those things where you could drive as, as I did seven hours north and still find yourself in New York and still have another two hours to go before you hit the Canadian border, and that was up in uh, Geneseo, and so I went to university and studied English language and English literature and got my degree. And I thought about going into children's literature, children's books, and I didn't really have anything lined up after graduating. But I had been a carpenter's assistant during the summers. I worked for these two big Italian guys, and I used to put in windows and doors and carry sheetrock and, you know, demolish bathrooms. And, and what, what is sheetrock? I hate to ask. Uh, what, what? Plasterboard. Oh, plasterboard. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, basically, uh, 
you know, putting in windows and doors, but also fitting kitchens and things like that. And just that must have been a hell of an education because on, on one side you had your your academic and then studies, every, yeah, and then and every summer I was worth, worth. These guys imparted great wisdom to me. Uh, one of them was I'd never get married. I'm not sure if that counts as great wisdom or not. But the, <laughs> <laughs> the, other, one, the other one said, uh, before you do something stupid, don't. <laughs> I like that. that that's good advice and uh you know they'd say things like um they'd always call me a hundred different names like sean seanzy brown um buster buster brown they just make up names for me all day how long. old were they uh they were probably in their 40s and you were what I was, yeah it's 18 kind of realm because i worked with them for a number of summers and they they treated me like a son oh that's and nice. they were they were really great guys and they looked after me a lot and uh well, yeah, one guy was kind of like, oh, maybe, you know, would you like to take on the business? And that was about the time when I was graduating and trying to figure out what to do. And there was a point when they fired me because they, they, they did really well for themselves, but they had never gone beyond high school. I'm not sure if they had graduated from high school, actually. And they said to me, Sean, you're sleeping. You're sleeping on us. You're fired. I said, what are you talking about? I said, you went to university. You got a degree. Go do something for yourself because you're working with us. You're waking up. You're coming to work, going home. Wow, That's really? It. And I, you, I got fired or let go from a job for similar reasons. And they said, if you don't, if something doesn't happen for you, you're always welcome here. But you know, we're we want to see you do well. And um, yeah, it was sort of a thing that came together where um, I remember being in my final year at university, and my dad sent me this article in the New York Times about this guy who was building gondolas in Venice, and this was kind of a big deal building Venetian gondolas, uh, boats in, in Venice, because that's only passed down through families, through heritage. And this one guy who was uh, from Tennessee, American fella, he found the one guy who didn't have sons and was also open-minded enough to teach the art to a foreigner. So essentially the, the art and the tradition had more value than the keeping it, you know, part of the secret, not secret society, but, you know, sort of, it has to be just... Keep it alive, yeah. Yeah. So he, he became sort of a mini celebrity to be sort of the, you know, the person from outside that was learning the art. And he'd set up his own little boat studio, uh, which is called a Squero. Uh, boat yard is called a Squero in, in those terms. And then he had a very international studio. So he had a secretary who was from Australia. He had a master craftsman from Germany. Uh, and he had a, a, a young fellow from just outside Venice, but would, would count as Venetian all the same in the, in the region. And... Um, I think another another one or two that would come and go. And so I remember reading about this guy, and I, I thought, well, of him, why not me? So I wrote him a message, and I said, uh, look, you know, I, I can speak some Italian. I took some in high school. I'm, I'm okay. Uh, and I've been working with these guys doing windows and doors. I know which end of the hammer to use. Like, <laughs> do you take on apprentices? And is that something we could sort out? And... I wound up getting citizenship, dual citizenship, to the European Union through my Irish side. It's before you left. So. Yeah, because one of the things was he said, well, maybe the commune, that's called the Commune of Venice, they might be able to have you on as a stagista, which is like an apprentice. But you'd have to have um, all this paperwork done and, and we'll you know check in and we'll see where we're at with the paperwork. Well, Italian paperwork, I didn't realize, can take forever, literally. So... I remember one of the things I did was I looked into getting citizenship, so that aspect wouldn't be a big deal. And on my Italian side, my grandparents had um, renounced being Italian for American citizenship. I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, so 
You can only have so many citizenships, but I think in <laughs> well, part of that seems fair. <laughs> in, in part of being uh, American, my Italian side had renounced that um, being Italian. So technically, on paper, they were American, and so the Italian consulate said, ah, "Paperwork, that's it. You're out." <laughs> wow! But on the Irish side, they said, "Well, just show us the paperwork," because my Irish side had as well done that. Um, I'm not sure why. You know, it might have been something of the time that you do that back in the 50s or, or whatever. But um, I was able to get Irish citizenship. So technically, I am an Irish citizen and have an Irish passport as well as American. And so I wrote to the guy and I said, look, uh, you know, wh where are we at? I've got citizenship sorted and stuff. Oh, yeah, just hang on, hang on, hang on. Well, two years later, I finally I finally got my answer two years later, and the answer was no. <laughs> oh, man. And I said, well, guess what? I've got citizenship and some money in my pocket. I'm coming over anyway. Uh, and he said, <laughs> yeah, okay. So I worked out that basically I'd be paying him for the yeah. pleasure of working as his apprentice. I wasn't going to wait for the commune to do what I wanted to do. So I, I packed a bag. And I, I literally went with like one bag, maybe maybe a bag and a half. I went with one big backpacker bag and moved to Italy. How old were you at this time? I think I was 23, 24. Wow. But I probably felt like <laughs> 18 or something like that. I have family over there. So we had connected with long-lost relatives uh, previously when I was in high school. So I did sort of have a family connect, and I could go see them at the weekends. And, you know, they, they brought me in like like I was a nephew essentially. So I had that base there. And my dad went you over. You were a nephew, weren't you? Uh, yeah, but like once removed kind of thing. Oh, okay. So quite, it was, I'm, uh, I should have looked this up to be um, better spoken about it, but it was sort of like my grandmother's uh, cousin's family. I struggle with those things. I come from a very small family. The thing is when, when we went over to meet them when I was a, a freshman in high school, my dad was just brought to tears because um, our relative there was a spitting image of his grandmother. Oh, wow. And how she acted and her mannerisms. She was very much a commander and would like talk to you in a forceful way and grab you by the wrist and make you like, you know, sit here, eat, that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, he was he was in tears because she was a spitting image of, oh, of his family him. in Connecticut. So um, yeah, they, they they took me in and we're still close and they've come to visit lots of times and I've been to visit them lots. So we, you know, we, we uh, strengthened family bonds. Still close to them now? Yes. Have they yeah. been to visit you in the UK? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh wow, yeah. that's so cool. Yeah. Um, so you arrived about 23, fresh-faced, eager, pocket full of money yeah. to, give to give to a craftsman. With nowhere to stay, so I lived in a hostel for the first two weeks <laughs> while I was looking for an apartment. And um, was going to work every morning from the hostel. And uh, my first job was uh, sanding back some boats. Oh, so and he took you on then? Yeah, well, yeah, what, yeah. What do you think that was? After saying no, the fact that you turned up, was he just so polite you couldn't say no? Well, I was money in his pocket, wasn't I? I was saying I'll pay you for the privilege, so yeah. yeah I'd love to see that. Yeah. You say he was from Tennessee? or? Uh, yeah, somewhere somewhere south. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I started I started working there, and then uh, I stayed in a hostel for quite a while until I found a really nice apartment through a friend because everybody in Venice is connected, and it's, uh, it's a very... It's, it's island mentality where everyone's kind of, you know, everybody knows each other and it's very easy to kind of navigate connections and stuff. So I had this really sweet apartment and um, it wasn't too far from where I worked and it was a rooftop place with a tiny little balcony and vines growing outside and a little water pump and it was like proper picturesque Venice with a little um, uh, grocery market down on the <laughs> stalls wow. downstairs on a Sunday morning, that kind of thing. and. Yeah, I was building and, and painting uh, gondolas. I was an apprentice builder uh, under the German master craftsman. 
and he, he's just amazing, the skill that guy has. And um, yeah, did that for about a year and a half before the business uh, struggled and went under. But when that happened, again with connections, there was uh, an island called the Island of Tritosa, and it's just off the lagoon. So if, you're, if you go on the outside edge of Venice, you can see it. You know, you wouldn't want to swim to it. That'd be quite a distance. And it's also like the, the boat highway that goes around the outside circle of Venice. I've got to make a note. Do not swim. Right. Got it. <laughs> uh, and the island used to be, centuries ago, uh, a nunnery, as far as I understand. So that's where Nun factory. Yeah. So that's why it's called Chertoza, because that, that translates in the realm of, of being sort of a religious center. And it had the, all the old ruins on it. Right. So it had buildings for... For that kind of thing. And then in World War II, it was an army base, I think, for Americans. So it had airplane hangars and things like that. It was also home to a lot of goats. And goats. Yeah. Right. So, so we're talking, when you picture sort of like a desert island, take away the palm trees, it was just an island that had uh, a pontoon to it. And it had these big buildings where you could build boats in it. One of them was an airplane hangar. And then some offices. And the rest of it was just um, wild land. And lots of rabbits and, and a herd of goats. And there was one famous goat called Romeo. Romeo. Romeo <laughs> famous right? goat. Yeah, and Romeo had, like, no fear. He'd just walk in the canteen and, like, help himself to if there was tins and stuff out. Like, <laughs> Romeo was always about, you know. I had a, a weird awakening after a crazy party one, one night where he was uh, he was kissing me. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so I, met the, I, I went to that island and I, you know, expressed interest. And they said, well, we need a painter. And I had done some painting in the last couple of months. So I said, yeah, I know how to paint. And next thing you know, I was in charge of the paint department and had oh, an wow. airplane hangar for a paint room. So I painted uh, a couple gondolas and then everything nautical from varnishing. I remember those uh, summer of varnishing the you know the famous taxis that you see mm-hmm. when you when you if you look up an image of Venice you'll see the the varnished taxis and varnishing all those and then everything from like yachts to all sorts of different types of Venetian flat bottom crafts. So you have sandalos and you have sampirotas and you've got mascarette. You've got all these different types of boats that are used for fishing or hunting or or transportation of goods um, that go around. And, yeah, life in Venice was just amazing. There's festivals that would happen all the time. There would be something every month. Carnival is uh, just fantastic. There was all sorts of um, uh, the festival of Redentore. is one of the best and biggest, most amazing festivals where it's, you know, tailgating? Yeah, oh, so, wait, the American yeah, meaning of it. Not in, in this country, if you're tailgating, you're oh, well, driving that, too close that, to someone on a motorway. So tailgate party, because there is tailgating in the States as well. But tail, tailgate party, but imagine that in, in the lagoon with boats. So everyone ties their boat up next to each other in rows, like wow. a parking lot, and shares food and drink, and then there's fireworks, and there's a huge like display of what laser the, lights on the Palazzo Ducale. What are the festivals based on? Because like, this country, the UK, used to have... There used to be something like in medieval times. There's about 140 festivals a year, all religious based in some way or other. Was it a similar? Yeah. So the festival of Redentore, what they would do is uh, they'd build a a bridge out of boats and put a walkway on top of it to connect you from the island of Venice to the to the island of the Judeca, because there's no bridge to the Judeca, which is a sliver of of island. Like literally swimmable across from from Venice. If it wasn't for the boats, and at the very end of the Judeca, there is the church of uh, uh, Redentore. I think it's Santa Maria Redentore, I believe, and it's basically your annual health insurance. So when there was the the plague, 
and everyone was dying in Venice. Um, I, was, I really hope I have this all right because it's been quite a while <laughs> since I remember this. So I don't want to think like, someone listening going, yeah, what? Yeah, yeah, false That's information. Not how it happened. But uh, what would happen was they they decided the best way to stop all this from happening is we should build a giant church to to um, to Mary, and and uh, that'll that'll be our our way of <laughs> not having the plague. And all right, so you're in your health insurance is you go over there, you say a prayer, light a candle, and you're and you're good for another 365 <laughs> days. So the the festival celebrates that, and it's all the fireworks and, and all the parties, and you can you can have a um, great time on land just in front of San Marco. So if you go to if you go to Venice and you know where the the main square is, which is St Mark's. And you walk along the outside. You have the um, the the riva, and that's where you'd you'd have tables and benches full of food and everything. But on a boat, it's just absolutely amazing. Just just party. And then some. You go to Lido, which is the island where the beaches are at the end of the night for sort of a top off the night and see it into the day kind of you know evening affair there. But yeah, there'd be little things in squares where there'd be people you know playing with tossing fire in the air that kind of stuff there was there was a, a university there so there was a student life and there'd be these impromptu parties in Campo Santa Margarita where you'd have spritz which which is like the wine spritzer of the of the Veneto region and uh yeah just impromptu parties seem to happen here and there but there's always like a festival for like mushrooms or festivals for zucchini or something like that if you go to I remember there was a festival of wine called the Ombra Longa and uh, that means the it means a long shade because what happens is when when they had wine cellars, right? When uh, that would come from afar and they'd sell their wine in Saint Saint Mark's, that used to be the trading place. So you'd have the spice brought in, and you'd have all the the customs and the and the sailors come. They would keep the wine at the base of the bell tower, and as the day changed and the shadow of the bell tower went around like a sundial, you would move the wine into the shade. So of course, people saying, "Let's go taste the wine, the newest one that's come in." They'd say, let's go in the shade. So going for a small drink of wine would be called going for a bit of shade, a bit of ombra. So a little glass of wine is called an ombra. So the ombra longa takes place in, a, in um, I can't remember the name of the town. It's not too far. It's in the Veneto. It's not far from Venice. And you go there, and basically it's like a pub crawl where you go from little little bar or osteria from one to the next, they give you the map, and you can get like a little kind of tiny, not quite a shot glass, but a little glass for drinking wine that goes on a necklace around your neck. <laughs> and you go and you tick off that you've had a red wine or a white wine, whatever, from each one of the places. And it is just carnage because after a couple little glasses of red wine, it is it does add up. <laughs> um, but that's a huge festival as well. There's, there's always fun things to, to check out. So your, your integration into this, I mean, how, how long did you live there? I... Uh, a little bit over two years, I think. Just two years. So you you just give me a fairly good account that makes it sound like you were there twenty years. I, I feels like I was, yeah. I had so many adventures every single um, evening. I remember being in my apartment and telling myself, if I stay home tonight, and this could be on a Wednesday, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to watch some Italian TV and struggle to keep up with what they're saying because it's really hard. Or I could go out and something might happen. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a point where you're there and you realize you're on your own. You're kind of desperate for making friends and, and having a, a group of people to hang out with. And so I'd go out and I'd wound up 
meeting expats or I'd meet people that were traveling through or I'd met people that were studying in Venice and it helped that I could speak the language but obviously I was different and I had something I could talk about and eventually knowing other people who were English but living in Venice because it is quite small if you go out enough you'll you run into them enough and you go oh so you're not a tourist coming and going you're you're still here you're, you're here as well <laughs> as I am oh yeah and you start chatting them up and that's eventually what led to meeting my wife so before we get to that I'm really interested in the, the, the language. You said you spoke some Italian. You did mm-hmm. Italian at school. I mean, in this country, apart from a few people, doing language at school doesn't really arm you. It gives you the ability to learn how to ask, where is the youth hostel I'm leaving on Thursday? Right, yeah. Or does your father fly an airplane? All these kind of strange things. But, for example, I can remember the first time I went to France, having done some GCSE French, realising I could just about ask where the toilet was. And nobody was asking me what my favourite colour was. Nobody was asking me how old I was and what I was doing next yeah. September. So having having studied Italian, how confident were you when you got off the plane? I was okay. In- I was I was all right. I remember when I was in my freshman year of high school and I'd, take, I'd taken some Italian, because I took Italian for four years in high school. And I remember it was some point in the first or second year that we went to Italy as a family to see all the sites and do the kind of big Italy trip and reconnect with our relatives that I was talking about before. And I remember once we were in Rome and I asked how much is a Coca-Cola? And the response I got wasn't what I was expecting. And that's that's the hang-up. When you go, this, the response will be a number. It'll be a one-phrase thing, right? And you have that fixed in your head is that's what I want to hear. And instead, I got something that was probably along the lines of it probably translated to um, small one is this, medium is that, the one in glass is that, the big bottle is that, the two-liter bottle is that, right? So I got like a, a paragraph as a response. And I replied, how much? And then the guy like shook his head at me and spoke in yeah, English. This must happen to so many people who go to different countries. So in the UK, all, all countries are obviously very different depending on where you go in the country. But I always think if somebody anywhere in the world has learned English and then they come to the bit of Suffolk that we're in, or just come to Suffolk. You could yeah. ask somebody in a shop really nicely, how much is this Coca-Cola? And they could reply, well, at pen boy, you know. We, or even, yeah. Even you if want, you get on you the bus. You want a cold from, one? Do you want a warm one? <laughs> I remember being on the bus from Stansted and the, the driver would announce something and he'd either be Scottish or from up north and I could barely make out what he oh, was we, saying. Oh, we struggle with that, know? to be fair. Um, and you get that. But yeah, I, I think when I, when I was in Italy, when I first landed, um, I felt like I had a decent grasp, but it's one of those things that, and you'll hear this everywhere, if you're in a country and you're, you're speaking it every day, um, your mind is exercising that so much that you start to have dreams in Italian. Wow. And I used to have, like, the first dreams I had were really disjointed. They'd just be vocabulary words coming into my head. <laughs> but the other thing that helped is I carried a little notebook with me, which I still have somewhere in a memory box, where I would write really small on this little notepad a new word any time I didn't understand it. And I found that if I wrote it down, I committed it to memory like that. Mm. If I didn't write it down, I'd forget about it very easily. So I picked up a lot of stuff. I also picked up phrases from being around people. So um, when you'd say, how much is this at the, at the cafe? To say, you know, you want to pay. You might want to say in English, what's the damage? Mm. But you don't know how to say that. And you don't learn those phrases until you're someplace for quite a while, right? So I would, you know... How much do I give you? But in a slang-friendly way would, yeah. would be things. So I'd start to pick up that terminology, and that's where I started to pick up a bit of the Venetian dialect. 
And of course, when you pick up dialect, you're picking up the intonation and you start to sound a little bit, you get a bit of street cred. So you kind of want to mm. learn <laughs> how to say the things in Venetian and pick up the phrases. And instead of using the proper verb form, you use that, that dialect verb form. So um, for example, let's go. Most people would know andiamo. And it ends in I-A-M-O, iamo. And then when you go to different places in Italy, that last bit changes. So it would be like amo, so andemo. And then if you go like really, really southern, it might be something like um, umo or something. I can't remember how it would be in Sicily. But that little last bit on the end changes. And of course, all the verbs end in A-R-E. They go to iamo. So it's sort of like once you have that last ending, you can apply that to you a got, thousand words. You've got the toolkit. <laughs> yeah. The toolkit, yeah. Yeah. Um, so the verb to have translates to o i a abbiamo avete anno, and that would have a g sound in front of it so go and then you'd start applying that so all of a sudden you could really simply just interject a little bit of i've been here long enough to know that how you talk so i'm adding a little bit of <laughs> yeah into it. take me seriously here, yeah you know. just a little bit don't charge me five euros for that can of coke <laughs> so but i got on all right with that there was yeah like you struggle once in a while and you go tonight i just want to speak english i just want to be understood uh, and that's where it would be kind of a comfort to go talk to some people that were traveling through. Okay, so, so just just before we wander off the language, I'm, I'm really interested in language. It's funny you say about dreaming in another language. I'm fluent. Well, I used to be fluent in sign language. I can't claim to still be fluent because I think you, you right. lose language. No, I never do that. But I, oh, yeah, and I can remember having dreams in sign language. It's, it's a really it's a really odd thing. Um, but... So, so you, you're okay with the language. Now, mm-hmm. there, there's a story I'm slightly trying to tease out of you. Here All right, about, but my dad's Italian. About your dad's <laughs> Italian. So, I mean, tell us a little bit. So you, you were kind of the cool kid. You were, you know, hey, I'm in Italy now. I'm, I've got my notepad. I'm going to speak proper Venetian. I'm going to get the dialect. Yeah. So how's your dad's Italian? Well, the thing is, here's what's unfair. I, I went to school and learned Italian from textbook. I learned Dante's Italian, right? And then my dad grew up with it, so he never had it in school. He learned what he got from home. So he learned Veneto dialect that was brought over mixed with English. So I like to call that garbage because he'll (laughs) he'll say things that don't make sense. He also never learned how to uh, use the correct verb endings and the pronouns, so he'll mix and match things that don't make sense. So, you know, the, the way the language is structured, you'll have a, a we form of the verb. And my dad will use that verb, but he'll use the word you. And it's just, it's like a train crash, basically, of uh, linguistic, ling- linguistic all the time. Oh, really? I was going to say, like, you know, because... Uh, and short- he gets, he'll get, he gets uh, upset by it because I always say, what are you trying to say? And sometimes I see if I can catch him out and make up words to see if, <laughs> if, he, um, if he catches that. But, yeah, he used to, he used to say... Um, things when I was a kid that, I mean, they, I really don't know how, we, we just grew up with this, like, slaba la boca. And that used to mean wipe your mouth. And now when I think about it, yeah, the word boca is mouth, but slaba. Like, how is that Italian, right? <laughs> it's just, it's doing what Germans do with, with language, where they take several words and just sort of crush them together. Yeah, because lava is to wash, like, you know, lavarsi is to wash yourself. So, that's in there with lava, boca, but he's a slava. <laughs> and so it just that slight tw- twinge on stuff would, would be um, a bit confusing. That's a great example. Have you got any more? So the other thing that um, he, <laughs> the, funny, the funny one is my, my dad was, when he was in high school, there was a kid from southern Italy that joined his high school. 
And I think that 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 student purely was from uh, Italy and really struggled with English. And so they asked my dad to kind of look after him. And uh, on one of the days at school, um, the, the boy said to him um, something about needing to go to the bathroom. But my dad didn't understand what he was saying, so he took him to a, the, his locker. And, and the <laughs> reason do, why, the reason why is because my, the, the, the guy said gabinetto, and that's the, the proper Italian word for bathroom. But my dad heard that as cabinetto, which is like a cabinet, right? <laughs> so he, took, he thought, what could be a cabinet? Because my dad didn't know that word for bathroom. He didn't learn the proper so word for bathroom did, as gabinetto. Did the kid go to the toilet in your dad's No, he, he, my dad took him to the locker and he did the thing with the Italian hands and said, I need to take a pichad. It's like Sean's <laughs> doing like, it was like a praying motion. Yeah, the, with yeah they're shaking praying hands. I need to do a pichad, not the locker. Because the word my dad used for bathroom was bacausa. And the reason why he used to say bacausa, and remember he grew up in sort of a rural area, farmland area, is because if you slow it down, it's back of the house because that's where the outhouse would have been so my dad grew up with that and then there's there's other stories where you know my dad was at some function and uh he wanted to get the the chair for this lady who's about to sit down and he wanted to say to her like i'll, I'll get your um carega which would be veneto which would be dialect for stool but the lady heard caressa which means to caress. And so she slapped him in the face because, you know. But yeah, so we, we learned a lot of, um, a lot of silly words, I, I thought. But it's funny how he could communicate with our Italian relatives as if he was born there speaking gibberish. And they, had, they didn't struggle to understand really? him at all because he knew so many dialect words that they, they understood what he was saying. That's amazing. But when it came to saying something properly, like how much is the ticket for a family of four, et cetera, he would be hopeless because that was proper structure and proper nouns and things. God, so, I'd love to hear one of those conversations and, and understanding what, what your dad and relatives were saying because that, that's quite a remarkable thing. I think it, it shows it with language. You can get a lot across just with your body language and, and, and your volume and, and your intonation and everything. Apparently, there is a place in Germany somewhere that if you've got a thick Suffolk accent, you can just about understand what these Germans are saying. <laughs> I've not tested it because I can't remember where it is, but it was in a Bill Bryson book, so it must be true. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so that that's cool. So you 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 were you'd been you've been painting branching boats for yeah. a couple of years in Italy, and I know from conversations I've had with you that it's not as straightforward as, as just decorating a room. It is a hell of a skilled job. Yeah, there's a lot of process to it, a lot of sanding, a lot of cleaning, another coat, sanding, drying times and things like that. So I, I got really good at it. And um, it was a thing I was doing. And one of the highlights was uh, one day when I was painting boats, we had these guys rock up with the boat that was used in James Bond Casino Royale. Oh, ooh. So this English crew comes on, and everyone says to me, hey, Sean, you English, right? So I go over, and I meet these guys. I shake their hand. I go to make them a cup of tea. And I'll be honest, it was probably the first cup of tea I ever made in my life. Hang on, they're English. What do I do? Make yeah, them so, tea. So I made them a horrible cup of tea, and I showed them my you know, the paint room and the boats I was working on, and you know, they were very complimentary. And then it turns out Venice is a small world. We want, small world. We wound up uh, hanging out and going out for drinks and things because the – my apartment wasn't too far from the green room set up where they were filming the, oh, the wow. film. Because what they were doing with the boat, um, you couldn't actually do this in Venice. Y they were sailing it down the Grand Canal. It was like one of the final scenes. And, of course, to sail down the canal, you would need to lower your mast underneath every single bridge mm -hmm. <laughs> to do that. So they had these, you know, they had the mast go down, and then the guys from my island were helping to put the mast back up. And 
um, help motor it down out of sight, you know, with a with an inflatable boat on the on the backside, so you wouldn't see it to get them down the canal, and then they'd shoot that, and then take the mast down and go underneath the next bridge, that kind of thing. So they were just a bunch of guys that I met, and then it, what happened was, as I said before, about knowing expats at bars and stuff. I met this guy, and it was his birthday party, and how I met my wife was she went. He was from Ipswich, this guy, and uh, my wife knew him from school. I think from like kindergarten or something wow. nursery school so like or, or from high school as well like basically knew him growing up as a friend from school and he was studying in venice and uh, my wife was studying in torino and she was passing through and he had written her oh yeah my birthday party's on this weekend or whatever we're gonna go you know bar hopping in venice and stuff you're welcome to come along so in hanging out with him i met her on a night out wow and we hit it off and then um, I asked her to stay for one more day because she was going to go to Verona, and she and she stayed with me, and we went for we had a date and a nice dinner, and um, the next day I remember I, I had to go to work, and um, she had slept over. No, nothing had happened. I know this insinuates stuff, but like nothing had happened. You know, it was very very proper. And I went to work the next morning, and then I, I thought to myself, what am I doing at work? I left this amazing girl in my apartment, and then my New Yorker. Side kicked in. I left this girl in my apartment with my passport and my money. What the heck's the matter with me? Right? <laughs> and I was calling her like, are you okay? Everything all right? You get out all right? And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm fine. I'm on the train to, to Verona now. Uh, and so. Have you got my passport? <laughs> nah, yeah. So, so I went home. And what do I find? But she had left notes hidden everywhere in my apartment. Wow. So there was a little note on how to make a cup of tea in the cupboard. There was a, a little, you know. You know, sweet dreams or something message written on the on the mirror in the bathroom, and I was, I was finding these notes for like a week later. But it was that ne- it was that moment where I was like, "She's she's special. Mm-hmm. I need to find her." And the next day, I was like, "You know what? I'm just gonna do it." I got up bright and early, and I got on a train seven in the morning, and I wrote her a message and I said, "I'm coming to find you in Verona." And How far is Verona? So there? Verona from Venice is probably about an hour, maybe an hour and okay. a half. So it's a, it's a little bit of a train ride, but she had moved on, and I was not going to let her get away. So I went to Verona, and I was trying desperately to find a place where I could buy flowers for her first thing in the morning. And we said, we'll meet outside the arena, you know, which is kind of like a miniature coliseum in, in, in Verona where they do all the, the plays and operas. And uh, I met her outside the, outside the arena, and she had a bag with two croissants in there for us for breakfast. <laughs> you know, so we had a long distance relationship that went on because she went eventually back to Torino, finished her studies, and she went, came back to Ipswich. And we would see each other once a month, every other weekend. I'd go there, or she'd come what, here. So you'd go to yeah. Italy. Oh, sorry, you'd go to the UK. She'd come. Yeah, to Italy. so she was studying at Leicester. So I'd visit her. I visited her in Leicester a couple times. She came to Venice probably a bit more because it's more. Fun. It's nicer than Leicester. Yeah, and. Um, but I, it was interesting for me to go to Leicester and have a hamburger and stuff because I couldn't have that stuff in Venice. And, uh, yeah, it was it was a, a very long-distance relationship over a good period of time. And one day I thought, she's my future. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cash in Venice, Venice for her. And I came to Ipswich. And lo and behold, in the marina, there's the guys that built the James Bond Casino Royale boat. Well, the same people. The same com- the company, the same oh, the guy, company. the actual oh, guys. Spirit, what are they called? Spirit Yachts. Spirit, yeah. I, I, so, I went, so I went down there and I said, hey, um, some of you might remember me. 
you saw my my boatyard. I thought I'd come see yours. <laughs> so is it, they, they've got a spirit boatyard in Venice. No, no, no. So the spirit spirit is um, based here in Ipswich, and they brought the boat to Venice. Oh wow! I didn't know that. So the spirit yacht that's in the film was was sailed over oh to my Venice. God. And they sailed on the Grand Canal, and they had in Lagoon, and and so some of the crew members were the guys that actually built it, plus the bosses at the time. That's not a bad kind of couple of weeks of work. Yeah, so that boat you just finished making. Would you mind sailing it to Venice and then spending a couple of weeks filming? Yeah, all right then. Yeah, if I must, over time. I met them, and on a handshake, I became um, a painter at Spirit Yachts for the next seven years. Wow, seven years you were there. Yeah, and did you marry the girl? Yes, so we we got married. Um, there was a, a period of time where um, I did go back home because my mom was at her tail end with her battle with cancer, and so I just needed to be home for for that ending and be with be with family for a bit. And that sort of led on to the the next bit because I knew then that it was like we weren't married just yet. We were engaged, but we we weren't married, and I and it was okay. Yeah, I'll I'll go back to England. But when I was back in the States, I had temporary work building Christmas window displays for Macy's and Saks Fifth Avenue. I didn't know that. Yeah, so I was building like Santa's Grotto and stuff. I was making big things small and small things big, like a like a six-foot-high jack-in-the-box or Santa's living room or stuff like that. And You're it, actually building the stuff. Yeah, so they, they had this huge department. Um, as an independent company, that would do all the Christmas windows for the big department stores. And you had guys doing mechanics. You had guys doing... Um, animatronics you had puppeteers you had painters and you had builders and i was one of the builder guys so i'd be cutting up wood and stuff you had a guy in a cnc machine and they'd have everything that would all come together and there'd be digital elements and they'd make the the crazy christmas displays which are are world renowned right i didn't know them from elf but yeah so but the crowds on opening night for these things are, are massive so that was seasonal work and that's where i saw them you know creating things in photoshop and I started to get an idea around, oh, maybe I should look into that. It looks quite interesting. So I did a taster course in graphic design. And if you're going to do it, do it right, right? So I went to, like, the number one school in Manhattan and did night courses <laughs> um, in graphic design in, in New York City. It was School of Visual Arts. And when I came back to Ipswich, it happened to be that the university had been built on the other side of the marina. Mm. So I went there for an open day, and I saw the graphic design course. And a fire was lit in the belly. <laughs> and uh, they showed me around, and I said... When can I start? And they said, you don't understand. This is an open day for next year's intake. And I said, no, you don't understand. When can I start? <laughs> like a similar story to you going to Venice. Like, no, you can't start now. Well, I'm going to. And uh, they, yeah, it, that's what happened. The guy said, um, I didn't realize I was speaking with the, the head of the course. I, you know, like in America, you'd probably have just a representative of, mm. of something. This was like the actual guy, the, the head of the course. And I, and, I, and he could see I was serious. He said, all right, well, maybe um, we could do a last-minute port- port- portfolio review on, like, say, Tuesday. I was in class by Friday. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. And then because I had been given that chance, you know, I was, I was uh, now in thir- my 30s, like 32 kind of thing. See, this, this is – I'd known you for, I think, a year or two by – yeah. Probably longer, actually, by then. Yeah. But this is where if someone gives you a chance like that, you don't let them down. Mm. You work hard. So I, I loved every minute of university as a mature student, and I went for everything. You name it, I did it. And um, I was working part-time at the start on the boats and at, at the university doing my degree. And then it was in my f- freshman year. This is like another funny story. of I entered a contest I was too old to enter. Right. <laughs> 
<clears throat> but it was with like the world's number one design agency, right? So why wouldn't you? Mm. And I did write to the people saying, look, I'm too old, but I'm just entering. I'm no different from my 19-year-old cohorts. Like, and they never got back to me. So I submitted anyway. And one of my designs, this was for Earth Hour, making what? a poster about um, being greener. And I did, a, I did a poster. And I wound up getting shortlisted as one of the top six UK national finalists. Oh, wow. right? And the prize is you're invited down to this design studio for a day of mentoring and seeing the studio and was everything this, else. What's the name of the company? Pentagram. Yeah. And so I remember having to fess up and write to them saying, so I'm not, I'm not 20, 21. <laughs> Wait, what, what do you think they would have guessed? If you, I mean, Sean, you still look about I, 21 now, in I my thought opinion. About, I thought about blagging it, but um, I fessed up and I said, but look, I did it for the love of design. I don't see why I'm any different with only one year of experience at university from anyone else who would have been taking part just to sit in the corner and smell the studio would mean the world to me. Mm. And they could tell from that that I was serious. And, and I got a reply that said, to be fair to everyone else that applied, we have to disqualify you. Yeah. But we still love your poster and we want to publish it anyway. So it still wow. got turned into something that could make money to help the green cause and be turned to posters and tote bags, et cetera. And they said, when this whole thing dies down, why don't you come on down <laughs> for a little visit, have lunch. So when that date came around, I went down there, and you'd be silly not to bring your portfolio with you, of course. And I had a nice tour. I got some really cool books. Uh, I got to meet a bunch of different people. It was just really exciting to do this. And then one of the, you know, the way that company works is you have heads of different design teams, right? And so the head of this design team finally sat down with me, and he said, well, you have anything in your portfolio to show me? So thankfully, I had brought my, yeah. my, my book with me. And he flipped through. He went, okay, all right, all right. And this is all fr first year work. And in first year stuff, you're doing a lot of exploration. You're doing a, a oh, just of, the first year of the course. Of, of, yeah. Oh, oh you like, had, I'm had like some fresh. Way, yeah, you had some way to go. Then. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's not like I had an established portfolio. I had, I had or a degree. <laughs> yeah. And um, but the thing that I think stood out was he got to the last page and he flipped it over, and there was a clipping from the metro that morning about like men's prostate cancer or something like that. And he said, "What's this?" I said, if I see things, I collect it. Like, I, I collect good bits of design. I saw that this morning, and I just tucked it in the back of my book. Mm -hmm. And it was, I think it was that, that he was like, it's more than just doing the work. It's, it's being actively engaged in your surroundings I, I, and stuff. That's, that. that's something that I see time and time again. So I work with loads of different clients. I've got a client who, they build big machines. And there's only a few companies in the world that build these machines. So it's, it's a bit like, you know, the varnishing thing. It's a very specialized thing. So you're not going to find a long queue of people wanting the job. So they find people who are really into fixing their own cars. Well, like um, Vietnam War, a crap example potentially, but a lot of helicopter pilots were bikers. They'd go mm. out to the biker bars, and if you could build and maintain this gnarly old Harley, you'd probably have the good mechanical sympathy. And Disney, do you know, do you know about the Disney litter? No. If you go for a job interview with Disney, right, you know, you go for a job interview, you turn up with everyone else, and you're, you're sat in a room waiting to be called in do that at disney there's always a piece of litter next to the, a bin all right right and the person without being prompted the person who goes picks up the litter and puts it in the bin gets like extra points right. for the thing. i'd That's really like it because it yeah. really is like okay you're not just you've not just been prepped on how to do well in an interview it's, it's actually you, are, yeah. you. Well, a lot of interviews ask ask um you know what are your hobbies beyond the work that's in your portfolio because you're hiring a person a lot of times but yeah, a lot that, of times that <laughs> well, thing the um robots are much easier <laughs> like yeah 
that that went well for me, and and uh, I did a two week placement uh, at Pentagram, which was paid, wow. which is which was um, still just in your first year. Yeah, and that was the catalyst where I said I'm putting down the paintbrush, university full time, and then yeah, everything at university I just went for it. You know, joining, you know, being uh, course rep and joining student union council and and. Uh, putting my name in the hat for everything so like the logo for the hold and stuff that was a brief that was out and and i i went for it and made that so did you did you yeah. use your one sort of so I, I made the original one um before there was even a building when it was just a concept mm -hmm. and uh it, it's interesting because what i what i did was i researched the um the barry salter so i ought to just say that the hold is they built a new public archive Suffolk archives yeah. Suffolk archives and it's, it's an important building it's well it's the records office essentially yeah it's a records office and also a community center mm -hmm. um, and when that was the brief of that's what it's going to be location was to be determined waterfront earmarked and the name the working name at the time was the hold so mm. you know this was all very much we're thinking about doing this we need to create the fundraiser event around it this is the, like how early the stages were um, I, I submitted a, a logo for this and the research I did, I still have it as a PDF cause it's kind of, it's kind of funny where I looked up the, the, uh, Barry Salter, which is, you know, calligraphy and you're talking uh, sort of like Canterbury tales kind of time of, of, of calligraphy and how letter forms look there. And as it was the waterfront, the waterfront building itself was kind of still new. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did an H which had an arch through it. So that is sort of the shape, the negative space in the H from the arch is the waterfront building. So I had little windows wow. and stuff in it, right? So it was tying the type of the Suffolk archives and, and old literature and, and antiquities would be in the, the, the font, the hold. But in the negative space of the H was the waterfront building because everything loosely said it would be on the waterfront and connected to the university. So having the little waterfront building in the negative space of the H. When and that got made, so I, I, I um, that got turned into like you know uh, I took photos of the banners and stuff. But then when it became the hold and the building was actually designed and created, then uh, I'm not sure who or, or where then further developed it to match with the the latest branding. Because at that time, University of Suffolk was called UCS, University mm -hmm. Campus Suffolk, and then it became University of Suffolk, and that's where the black and yellow has come in. So they updated what I had created with. So I can't say the one that's on the building is the one I created, but I created sort of version one and version 1.A is what's on the building and on all their branding, which is, it's a yellow stripe, so it connects it to the university. And they've gotten rid of the little windows, which is obviously the waterfront building, and it's its own building in its own right. But, but that, that, so that's one fairly permanent mark that you've made on, mm. on the waterfront in Ipswich. But for quite a while, there was a, a far more, uh, more temporary, but more obvious link to you Oh yeah. <laughs> On the I, I can't remember how you feel about this, but I guess because you you made um, some noise and you know, positive noise when you went to university. It's so just taking it was taking part. Yeah, I, we've got to got to say what what it is because I haven't actually told the listeners. Yeah, I had my all right. So I had my face like on the side of the building, six feet high. I got such a shock when I walked <laughs> walked down there. There was stopped there was at a... my tracks. Went Sean. That's Sean. I think I probably sent you a picture. Probably like everyone else did. No, it was a, it was something along the lines of like the faces of the university, and they they put a call out to staff and students saying. You know, we're looking for people to kind of represent what makes up the university. There was going to be a stall at the Suffolk show, and they had comprised a sort of like a little newspaper. 
And I was, I was up for anything, and it was promoting university. And I, I loved my time at University of Suffolk, and I loved the university. So, of course, I raised my hand, and I said, yeah, I'll take part. And so uh, there was a photo shoot, and, you know, I said, I have a student number, but I don't feel like one. That was my quote because, I, you know, I felt very much a part <laughs> of the university. And so they had different posters of people's faces on, on, the, on the windows that were, you know, the size of the windows are like, what, six, eight feet tall kind of thing. So... Yeah, there was there was that for a, for a while. But what was in, I found really interesting about that because it was also talking about diversity, and I don't remember there being any mention of the fact you're American. No, I mean, yeah, which is kind of it's it's only a point of a point of interest to me. I don't really know where I'm going, but I'm not making myself clear. I saw it that yeah, when I first saw it and some of the other faces, I was like, yeah, my my friend Sean is a part of the diverse story of the student, the student body, at the university, and I've just realised there was no mention of if your quote had been like, hey, I came from I came from New York and now I'm at, but it wasn't your the point was your quote was just completely about something else more important to diversity, I think, which is the you know I'm not just a number. Yeah, well, it's also taken into consideration you have a lot of international students anyway from University of Suffolk and a lot of mature students as well, and I kind of fell into both those categories, as, you know, but it was also um, different lecturers had interesting backstories or, or, you know, strong commitments to their courses and what they did beyond. Um, so it was, it was a nice collection of different people, and, yeah, I made friends through that as well. It oh, was, really? Yeah. Because people recognized you. Yeah, well, you know, because we all had to sort of, we went to the, it was, they made like an exhibition tent at the Suffolk Show where you could walk around and there was the full stories under people's photographs and stuff. It was cool. a nice collection. It was quite a while ago, yeah. Right, so obviously, um, how, did you, how did you do at university? I did all right. You did all right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just about getting your face six foot high. So you, you completed your course. What, what was your next move? The next move from there was uh, to find a job in graphic design. And um, I danced around with a lot of different options in London through, again, another competition I, I entered and <laughs> did all right with, got me some, some sweet interviews and a lot of adventures because I wasn't getting job offers, but I was getting my foot in the door. Mm -hmm. And then I realized I had to be a bit more creative to, to get my five minutes, my elevator pitch with people. So I started going around London pretending I was a sort of like a bike messenger knocking on doors. I've never heard this. So <laughs> you ha when I say I did pretty well at university, I meant that I, I left with two things. A decent book, which is the word for your portfolio. Okay. And this idea that you learn how to learn, right? So you, it's not just about being proactive. It's about how you, how you adapt when you're being proactive to do something. So one of the first things when I went to look for a job, I remember... A friend of mine posted a very bland A4 sheet of paper through a letterbox at a company, and they were blown away that they did not get an email applicant for the first time in the history of their company. And so they invited him in for interview. That made an impression. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, that would that's a very particular scenario where getting an A4 bland sheet of paper through the door <laughs> would be meaningful, right? So I took that. So well, what can I do with that idea? So I got business cards made that looked quite slick. They were black on one side, white on the other. And then I started um, making my CV on an A5 sheet of paper, but then on a black sheet of paper, printing the logo that was on the business card. And then to match the business card, because you get them, you know, you can get like that sliver of paper that's in between them, so it has a black sandwich like effect a to it. Something. Yeah, so, so it's like white on, it's like 
black on one side, white on the other. But if you looked at it side on, there's a black stripe down the middle yeah. of it. So it's three layers of paper. So I thought, well, I need to make my, my CV mimic that. So I remember, you know, this is after I graduated, but I still had access to the waterfront building. I was setting up on all these tables, um, newspaper, and then I had my CV printed on really nice art paper. Then I had this black paper with my logo that I had printed. I'm using the machines there in the uni. And then I had black paper in between, and I was doing spray mounting and doing the sandwich effect, basically making Oreo cookies out of, out of paper, right? And then trimming them all perfectly with a scalpel so they were, you know, all the excess was wow. trimmed perfectly, so it was A5. So that would come with my business card and a black paper clip. And this would come in a black envelope. And then with white marker, it would say the person's name mm. on it. And I would send this out. And I got nice reactions from companies um, rejecting me about how nice my, my presentation was. So I knew I had a good starting step, even though well, I was if you just on. caught their attention, that, that, yeah. that's a big step forward, isn't it? So the next thing was when I, when I went to London for certain things, I realized, well, I'm going to be in the neighborhood of these other big agencies. Um, so I remember what I did was I would knock on the door and I would say through the intercom to get past you know, the reception, I've got a letter for X, mm-hmm. right, which would be a creative director or something like that. I kind of think that maybe having the American accent made it feel like I was a bike, because a lot of bike messengers would be from everywhere, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And saying you have a letter for someone through an intercom, you're, you're a messenger, mm. right? You're a delivery. So they buzz me in. And then I get to reception, and I put my book down, and I put my envelope with my CV and all that stuff, and I said, this is for so-and-so, I'll be back in an hour, because that's kind of the drill, right? That you, well, you leave them the portfolio. Yeah, you say, and... I'll be back in an hour. If they look at it, that's great. You know, so so you're not putting anyone under any under any crazy pressure to come down and meet and talk to you. But it's like they know to deliver that to the person's desk. Seems if they incredibly feel like, polite. It's it's like the old work practices that you know you're. Totally, I like it. <laughs> you, you show up, you leave it, and then you come back in an hour, and they might have looked at it, or they might have, and half the time someone would come down and talk to me. I remember one time I we went someplace and and. Um, I said I had a letter, and, and they brought me up, and the, the boss was walking by, and the receptionist didn't know what to do. He says, can I help you? I was like, got, I'm, I'm here from, you know, got, here's my elevator pitch. The guy gave me literally five minutes. Wow. And you have it down to a, you have it down, you know, in this project. I have coming. absolutely no idea. Obviously, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, well, I'm a creative, but I've never worked in a, a crea- I'm doing air quotes, a creative agency. It's it's like a thing. It's a you've got a it's personal promotion. You got to stand out. And sometimes I found like if you knock on a door, you get stuff done. Like there was a crazy story of a guy who went to New York City. He wanted to work for Sagmeister, right? Sagmeister okay. and Walsh, very famous New York designer. And Sagmeister's building is somewhere downtown, and I think fifth story up, right? And so this this kid decided to put. Um, uh, window graphics of squashed birds on the outside of the windows. Now, how he did it was sort of like climbing on a dumpster and using like a huge pole and stuff, and like <laughs> in the middle of the night putting these graphics on the outside of his like window. Proto Banksy. So, Sagmeister and Walsh for like three days. I don't know why this guy left it till like the day before his flight. They couldn't figure out how anyone could possibly get on the outside of the building at that height and put <laughs> those stickers there. And of course, this guy then on the last day buzzed the office and said hey, I'm the sticker guy, and they invited him up for a chat. And the whole point of the birds was he was trying to do a dissertation about how hard it is to break into creative studios. You're mm-hmm. like a bird, and you see it's right there, but the glass gets in the way. The boundaries of going from being a creative student to a creative employee got him his dissertation. That's amazing. You know? And so you've, got to, you've kind of got to find a way to be involved but not intrusive. 
etc. So I danced around a lot of companies in London, but uh, I had done a placement with a design agency in Southwold and uh, called Spring. And when I went up there for some a placement, I had another placement over the summer, and then the, my hopes were crushed at the beginning because they had they had hired someone. But at, in that year where I was doing my job search, and I thought there's no way they're going to hire anyone new at, at at Spring because you know someone was already there. Uh, that person decided they wanted to go travel, go see Australia, etc. Very very wise. And they were looking for a middleweight designer. And I remember going up there and knocking on the door and saying, "Well, if you've got money for a middleweight." You might have money for a junior designer, uh, and would you know? You know what you're getting with me. I've been on placement. You know what I'm like to work with. And, well, they knew and, you. Didn't yeah, they? so uh, I had to sit down and a portfolio review, and then I was offered a job. So I, I worked as a graphic designer. Started off as a junior designer, and worked my way up a little bit to to designer uh, over over a couple of years, and was with uh, Spring for about four years. Wow! And got to work on a lot of great projects. Uh, always took on like the company Christmas card as a personal project to put that in for design awards, things like that. Um, one of the best things was I created a logo for the county. Wow. So anywhere you go for parking meters or, or your... Well, for Suffolk? Yeah, East Suffolk County. East Suffolk. Did yeah. you really? Yeah, so when you go to go put your parking meter in at Woodbridge or when the... the Rubbish lorry comes by, or if you get a you know, if you get a parking utility fine, bills and stuff. Sure, Sean has been yeah, a part my, of that, yeah. only a little part. But <laughs> Sean, this has been amazing. Um, we we run massively over time, but there's a few things I just kind of, a few questions I just want to kind of round up with. I mean, it's an impossible question to answer, but how do you think your life would have been if you hadn't left New State of New York? Um. It's a tricky one. At the, at, I remember reflecting on this a bit at the time that if I had not spent the money on a ticket to Italy, I probably would have bought like a Mustang. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd, be, you'd be mobile, but yeah, rubbish would have been boats. cool to have a cool car in my youth and do something like that. Um, but I try not to think about it too much because I don't find much value in, in regretting no. what could have been. That that's that's a, a lovely answer. It's, it's a it's a, a common answer. I, I'm. People ask me similar things when I'm interviewed, and I say, "Wait, the past is what's the cliche? The past is a foreign country." Hmm. I'm not living there anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 yeah. where you're at, man. Cool. Um, so, if anyone anyone say this, there's a 14 year old listening to this, and their eyes are out on stalks when they think when they look at what what's going on in the world and what opportunities there might be and what other countries are like. Could you give three bits of advice to that person? Um, one bit of advice. The first thing that pops in my head is some advice that I heard from from uh, an old Italian gentleman I, I met once who said, it translated to, go travel the world and then travel your, your town. So basically go experience the world and then come back and experience where you're from mm. uh, and how that kind of makes for being a, a well-rounded person. I think um, it's important to take chances Obviously, you have to weigh things up, but I think as you get older, your responsibilities have a stronger weighting to them, mm. and it's harder. And I look back on what enabled me to do what I did, and it was not being tied into a lot of stuff meant I could just go. And I can't really see how that would work out if you had, you know, heavy responsibilities and things. So if 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 the, you know, strike when the iron's hot kind of mentality of you can do it and everything's sort of in place, don't do it out of, don't not do it out of fear, mm. you know. Um, and and lastly, yeah, it's not to regret anything because when I kind of 
talk about where I've been and what I've done, I always kind of describe it as my life's a bit of spaghetti rather than waffles, you know? I don't have everything in boxes and in a linear way. Everything's a bit of a jumble. And it makes for a good story over a pint, you know? Like, I always used to say, if your life was a book, would anyone want to read it? That's a lovely note to end on. Thank you very much, Sean. Uh, I'm going to say goodbye. Would you like to say goodbye? Thanks for having me. Bye. (laughs) Cheers, Andy. Well, that's the end of this one. So, what do you think? Do you like it? I hope so. This is the kind of bit that you might be able to tell I just use the same bit every time because, well, it's not so much lazy as efficient, but this is the bit where I say smash the like button or stab at it or actually just stroke it gently. Be nice. Yeah, why would you be so aggressive? But please like, please subscribe, and please rank, rate, tell everyone this. These kind of things, I assume they matter. Everyone else says them. But there you go. So endeth this episode of the Andrew Culture Podcast. If you want to know more about what I get up to, go have a look at andrewculture.com because I won't bore you with it here. Anyway, until the next time, keep it cool, stand in a dry place, um, or do what you want. I'm not your boss. Bye.